the night of the 6th of June, 1944, at 4.50am, an army medic jeep pulling a small two-wheel trailer careened through the little French town of Troyes. It was under blistering attack from a garrison of Panzer Grenadiers that had set up their headquarters there. This really was a mission that was so desperate and so vital that should it have failed, it could have caused hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths at the landing beaches. But on board the jeep, there were no medical supplies, or indeed medics. All had been replaced by seven parachute engineers with half a tonne of explosive. Their objective, to blow a bridge that was a crucial crossing for a German counterattack. Some people think that D-Day started with troops on the beaches, but actually it started hours before. These dangerous special operations were designed to hamper the enemy's response to the landings that were yet to come. This is the remarkable true story of Major Tim Rosevier and a heroic band of seven parachute engineers. By the end of the night, sadly, some would be captured and killed but their legends still live on to this day. They were the demolition men of D-Day. I'm Bruce Crompton, history lover, military antique collector, and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to support these important institutions, honour the heroes that sacrificed so much and help preserve their legacies for future generations. John Rosevier, known by his friends as Tim, stood in the doorway of the Dakota and looked out at the French landscape sliding slowly beneath them in the darkness. Despite the roar of the engines and the buffeting of the wind, all seemed peaceful. It looked like the Germans really were being taken by surprise, he thought. It was nearly midnight on the 5th of June, 1944, just hours before the greatest beachhead assault the world had ever seen, D-Day. High over the channel, over a thousand planes filled the night sky, each filled with parachutists who were going to jump behind enemy lines and hamper the German response to the Allied beach landings. Every man knew that if they failed in their objectives, they would become prisoners of war or worse. It was a one-way ticket, do or die. The story I'm about to tell you is one of the most incredible tales of valour and perseverance I have ever come across. Being an ex-para, I know how much courage it takes to throw yourself out of a plane. My last jump literally almost killed me, but these men were doing it at night whilst being shot at and were dropping right behind enemy lines. Dr Chris Mann, the head of the Department of War Studies at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, 
explains the importance of D-Day. The Normandy landings, better known as D-Day, was the return of Allied forces to Northwest Europe and the opening of a land campaign by Anglo-American forces, which it was hoped would lead to the final defeat of Nazi Germany. The British, and certainly Prime Minister Winston Churchill, had always had their reservations about such an undertaking, wary of the losses it might entail. However, the American determination that this was the most straightforward route to victory, and given US preponderance in the Western Alliance, the British recognised the need for an invasion. Thus, despite Churchill's enthusiasm for campaigns in the Mediterranean and Norway, Anglo-American planning had been working on the presumption of a return to France since July 1943. And whatever Churchill's misgivings, the British, American and Canadian armies would return to the continent under their American Supreme Commander, Dwight D. Eisenhower, on the 6th of June, 1944. So the scene was set. Remember, everything you're about to hear is true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. The Major's Dakota was packed with men from the 3rd Parachute Squadron, Royal Engineers. Tim was a man that led from the front, and he was renowned for his great sense of humour, continual enthusiasm and his dashing looks. He was the archetypal, public school-educated British officer, complete with moustache. His men loved him. At that moment, next to the plane, a flat shell erupted in the sky. The Dakota violently swerved to avoid being hit. Major Tim was suddenly flung from the door, but he just managed to grab the door frame and pull himself back in. The men inside looked on with disbelief and some amusement. Losing their officer in this way wouldn't have been a good start to things. A few minutes later, beside the door, the red light switched on. The already rattled Major looked concerned. The terrain below looked unfamiliar. He shouted to his men to have their wits about them. It looked like they were about to be dropped on the wrong landing zone. There was absolutely nothing they could do about it, however. Come on, men. They were aboard a huge train in the sky and its direction would change for no man. A good friend of mine, Phil Campion, also knows exactly what it's like to jump out of a plane in combat. He's an ex-para and served in the SAS for five years on several operations worldwide. I hate your jumping. It's a really, really scary, insane, unusual environment. I like to stay focused on the loadmaster. See what he's up to. In the back of my mind, I know what I'm doing. I've been trained a hundred times, red on. Once that red light comes on, there's no turning back. You know you're gonna come tumbling out the side of that plane. You're at 800 meters, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, check canopy. You've looked up. That's not a lot of time. You've got to ensure that you've got a canopy. Assuming that that's okay, you've now got to make sure that there's nobody else around you that you're going to get tangled up with. You've probably lost three, four, five hundred feet, and now it needs to be feet and knees together. Your feet and knees need to be absolutely jammed, rigid together. You're going to accept whatever comes. You're not going to land, you're going to arrive, all right? So in that 800 meters, you've got everything to take in, 
that could ultimately decide whether you continue with this task or not once you get on the ground. At exactly midnight, the green light came on, and without any more time to think, Rosevear threw himself out the door. His shoe opened perfectly, but when he pulled the release toggle to drop his 60-pound kit bag off his ankle, nothing happened. The bag, packed with engineering equipment and explosives, wouldn't budge, and instead of hanging from a 15-foot rope, it remained attached to his leg. This was going to end with a broken ankle, he thought. Rosevear landed heavily, but God was looking upon him kindly that night, he thought, as once again he was unharmed. Cutting his way out of his parachute, he pulled out a map from his top pocket. He needed to work out where exactly he and his men were. The ground around him definitely didn't look anything like the terrain he had studied on the planning boards just a few hours earlier. If you want to see those boards or one of the maps that the parachutists had on them that night, do go and look at the display in the Airborne Assault Museum at Duxford. It's a brilliant small museum and really worthy of all our support. I've spent many a happy hour looking at the artefacts and talking to the curators. Anyway, if you get a chance, do visit it. It's a great day out. Details of how to find it are on our show notes or on our website, amazingwarstories.com. The deputy curator of the Airborne Assault Museum, Ben Hill, told me what Major Tim Rosevear's mission was that night. D-Day was an immensely dangerous and difficult task, as you can imagine. It involved landing thousands of troops into occupied and well-defended country, France. The Allies knew that the Germans had heavily fortified the western flank and placed panzer divisions right down the length of Normandy. It was vital, therefore, that these soldiers were not allowed to reinforce the beaches as the main Allied assault force landed there on the 6th of June. Rosevear's group was entrusted with blowing up the three bridges that crossed the River Dive, two at Bures, one at Troan, which would in turn cut the main route from Caen towards Le Havre. If he was successful, it would completely cut off the German counterattack. Around the Major, parachutists and gliders still continued to rain down around him. The ground the men landed on was a mixture of woods and marshland, and sadly, many parachutists drowned or got stuck in the trees. However, the third parachute squadron had at least landed on firm ground. Still disoriented, Rosevear felt some relief when he saw the familiar figure of Company Sergeant Major Bob Barr coming towards him. The last time he'd seen him, Barr was drifting towards a wood. The CSM saluted smartly and gave a situation report informing the Major that he had indeed landed in a tree, but had escaped unhurt. Most men had seemed to land safely as far as he could tell, although there were some casualties. 
However, there was also bad news. Not only were they definitely in the wrong place, the two horse gliders containing their equipment were nowhere to be seen. Rosevere couldn't understand how such a mix-up had occurred, but the sergeant pointed out the reason why. Although they were definitely at the wrong drop zone, they had landed right on top of the correct homing beacon laid by the pathfinders. It wasn't the Dakota pilot's fault. The beacon was right, but frustratingly, it had been dropped in the wrong place. The men searched the field for their containers, which had been dropped with them. Each had a light fitted so they could be seen in the darkness, but even so, it was hard with troops from every formation in the division milling around trying to locate their own officers and equipment. It was utter chaos. Overhead, a Stirling bomber, completely on fire, passed in an easterly direction. There was a distant crunt as it crashed a few miles away. The men on the ground watched it fly over and a sense of urgency grabbed them at the sight. This was real war and their lives were in danger. No, 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 no. That has just made it real. That has just lit the paper. That has just said to me, wow, this is on. This is on like Don Juan and it's happening now. They would have been under no illusion whatsoever. You are now in an extremely dangerous place. It's do or die from here on in. Sergeant Barr had calculated where they were and Major Rosevere knew he had his work cut out. They literally were four miles away from their original drop zone where he presumed their main equipment was. The bridge objective was several miles further on from that. Undeterred, Tim assessed the situation in front of him. CSM Bar had gathered around 50 men, including five officers, and they set about stockpiling all the equipment and explosives they could find. Luckily, the men had managed to find roughly 3,000 pounds of explosive, which sounds a lot, but was several tons short of what they needed to blow the bridges. The only bright side was that Barr and his men had also located several folding trolleys in which they stacked the incendiary devices on. Carrying the charges on top of all their weaponry and engineering equipment wouldn't have been fun. A lot of people have said to me over the years, why do paratroopers need to be so fit? You can't jump on top of the enemy. You're going to be a fair way away. That could be 5, 10, 15, 20 miles even. On top of that, you're going to have to carry the gear that you need to do the job. Now, I've been asked before, how much ammunition do you take, Phil? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll break my back with the stuff. And these guys would have been the same. They would have taken every last scrap of ammunition they could have got their hands on because they didn't know how long they were going to be out for or what it was going to take to get the job done. So, you can see, they've got an extremely heavy kit load to go a decent distance, then have a fight, and then perhaps even pack up and fight forward again. That's why paratroopers need to be fighting fit. They also need to be fairly robust characters. Heavily laden, they set off on a long march through the fields and hedgerows of Calvados. The Major looked at his watch. The time was now 2.30am. It would soon be dawn, and with the light, their element of surprise would be totally lost. They had to pick up the pace.
Over an hour and a half had passed since they set off from the drop zone. Progress was slow as some of the men had been injured in the drop and pulling the trolleys along the uneven roads was tough going. As the motley crew made their way down the high-sided country lanes, they suddenly heard the whine of a vehicle. The soldiers climbed into the hedgerows and cocked their weapons. And out of the gloom, Rosevear saw a Willie's jeep coming towards them. Stepping out into the road, he flagged it down. The driver was a Scot, Lance Corporal Young of the Royal Army Medical Corps. The fully laden vehicle, brimmed with medical supplies, was heading to a field dressing station which was being set up at La Mesnil. Rosevear immediately took command of the vehicle and ordered his men to unload all the medical equipment. The young corporal was exasperated, but the major had a plan. He ordered all the explosives to be piled onto the jeep and trailer and all the medical supplies to be offloaded onto the trolleys to be pulled by the men. He hoped the lighter load of medical equipment would help improve their pace. The jeep was piled high with nearly one and a half tonnes of explosives and once the men had completed their transfer, they all set off again. With Rosevear taking the wheel, the jeep crept slowly off, keeping pace with the foot soldiers. Driving a Second World War Willys jeep is not the same as jumping in a Range Rover today. It was a rickety piece of kit. And although there was over half a million of the things made, you still had to bear in mind that the driver needed to keep this thing going in a straight line. People needed to be operating weapon systems and making sure that was all up to scratch and somebody had to tell them where they were going. So everybody would have been focused on what they were doing and probably well to do so. Because if you'd have actually sat there and seen what the thing was doing and bumping from side to side and throwing you around, you'd have got pretty sick of it pretty quickly. They slowly passed through two villages, Hero-Viet and Esqueville. The men continually on edge, suspecting an attack from the Germans at any second from the old French buildings. But if there were any Germans billeted there, they didn't want to show themselves. Rosevear had a vision of them pulling up their bedclothes, not wanting to get out of their warm beds and confront the paratroopers. Whatever the truth was, this ragtag group of men, accompanied by the jeep, was making painfully slow progress. The going was excruciatingly tough, especially for the men that had been injured in the drop as they climbed the hill towards the forest called Bois de Bavon, an important strategic high point in Normandy. Finally, they reached the crossroads by the edge of the wood. Rosevear called a halt to proceedings and put part two of his plan into action. OK, guys, let's stop here. He ordered the majority of the men of the 8th Battalion to dig in with the medical supplies and await events. He then sent Captain Tim Jukes with the bulk of the remaining sappers to take some explosives and proceed on foot to blow the two bridges at Bure, a few miles to the south. Meanwhile, Rosevear ordered his trusty company sergeant Major Burr, along with Lieutenant David Breeze and four sappers, to climb on board the jeep. They were going to blow the bridge at Troan, the furthest of their objectives. With all the remaining explosives and extra men, there wasn't much room on board. So Rosevear asked one of the sappers, a machine gunner called Peachy, to sit on the trailer instead and guard the rear with his Brent. 
the Bren gunner was paramount to the survival of this patrol. And don't forget, he was sat on a great big pile of explosives. Now that's dangerous enough on its own, and probably enough to put a lot of people off. He had no time to think about that. He's got to think that actually there might be somebody willing to shoot at him now and set this whole thing off. And if they did, it's game over. They're all gone, the whole lot of them, and probably a few others besides. So his job was basically to sit there and make sure that nobody had followed them up and that in his arc of fire, nobody put rounds down which would compromise their patrol. The jeep was so overladen with men and explosives, the Major could barely get 30 mile an hour out of it, and its handling was atrocious. They had no time to spare, however, as they were already desperately behind schedule. So with the pedal to the metal, the jeep shot down the hill toward Tryon, and certain glory or certain death. If you want to see an identical jeep and trailer to the one the men were in, there is one just outside the Airborne Assault Museum. It really brings it home just how full up the vehicle must have been. The time was now 4am. Rosevear and his men had about an hour left before dawn. It was imperative that they got to their objective, as intelligence stated that the village of Troan was the command post for the 5th Panzer Grenadier Regiment, headed by Oberleutnant Brandenburg. This unit was part of the 21st Panzer Division, a highly trained and experienced outfit who'd respond immediately to any hint of an invasion. As they shot down the country lanes, the Major barely had the jeep under control. The men on board were clinging on for dear life. Unsurprisingly, it wasn't long before they encountered their first setback. Flying around a bend just on the approach to a village outside of Tehran, they suddenly crashed into a barbed wire roadblock. The wire got entirely tangled around the jeep's axle. They were going nowhere. The Major slumped over the wheel in disappointment. The mission seemed to be over. But just then, one of the plucky sappers, Lance Sergeant Irving, produced a pair of wire cutters from his combat plows. Apparently, he had borrowed them from the 8th Battalion supplies so he could deal with telephone wires during the assault. The explanation seemed dubious to Rosevear. But nevertheless, he was overjoyed, even if the cutters were blunt, meaning it would take an age to free the vehicle. Company Sergeant Major Burr ordered the remaining men to set up a defensive perimeter. As the light-fingered Irving got to work, it was particularly gloomy and the high hedgerows made it difficult to see. One of the sappers switched on a torch to see better, and before Barr could react, a shot rang out. Luckily, nobody was hit, but they knew that they'd now been spotted. Where the German was, no one knew. Perhaps he'd gone off to get reinforcements. After what seemed an eternity, 20 minutes later, the wire was now free from the Jeep. Rosevear quickly ordered the men back in. They had to get going before the whole German army up, came crashing down on them. Racing along once more, they soon reached the edge of Truan. Pulling over, the Major thought it wise to do a quick recce. It was only then that they realised they had left Sapper Moon behind. What had happened to him, no one knew, 
had he been hit by the German? Pushing this to the back of their minds, Lieutenant Breeze and Sergeant Irving went forward to see what lay ahead. As they both peered around the corner of a building, Rosevere saw a German heading straight towards them on a bicycle from the other direction. The men hadn't spotted him, and frustratingly, the sappers on the jeep were waving their arms, silently trying to attract the attention of Breeze and Irving. It was no use. Rosevere realised he was going to have to deal with the guard himself. Grabbing his knife, he got out of the jeep, but it was too late. The German soldier started shouting at the top of his voice and dropping his bicycle, he raised his rifle at the men. Simultaneously, the Major had no option but to shout to his men. Finally spinning around, Lieutenant Breeze saw the danger and shot the German dead with his Sten gun. The cat was now truly out of the bag. Losing surprise is not the end of the world, but it does put you on the back foot. In the SAS, we have a mnemonic, speed, aggression and surprise. Now, losing one of these when you've still got the other two still leaves you in a position where you've got a ticket to the party, but you're going to have to gate crash a little bit. Once they had lost their surprise, well, they still had speed and aggression. Quick and violent actions can cause an enemy to hesitate or become paralysed with fear. If you act first, nine times out of ten, you'll carry the day. Gunning the jeep, the Major let the men jump on board and then headed into town. He hoped they hadn't ruined their chances to blow the bridge. Hello! I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit. And if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. As they turned the corner, all hell broke loose. Germans were pouring out of doorways and opening windows. It seemed like a statistical impossibility that they would make it. All it would take is one single German bullet to hit a detonator on the Jeep, and then boom, it would be good night Vienna for all concerned. Suddenly, the air cracked like thunderclap as Peach's Bren gun opened up. All around them, bullets whizzed past the Jeep, miraculously missing the occupants. Sergeant Major Barr and Lieutenant Breeze opened up with their Sten guns, as did Sergeant Irving and Henderson. The rest hung on for dear life as the Jeep snaked around the road, Rosevere barely keeping control. Ahead, a German stepped out with an MG34. The Major decided to drive the Jeep at him and forced him back into the doorway. If he had managed to open fire, they would have been finished for sure. As they sped past, P-51 
Peachy fired the gun into the doorway for good measure. But they weren't out of trouble yet. It seemed from every window and every doorway, more Germans appeared, each taking pot shots at them. Bullets flicked on the jeep and on the stones around them. The noise was deafening. The vehicle wouldn't go any faster. Peachy was firing like a madman, trying to keep the enemy at bay. Then the German with the MG34 reappeared. He ran into the middle of the road, braced himself and opened fire. It looked as if it was going to be the end of the road for a Rosevear. It's a strange place to be under fire. Your whole world is tipped upside down. A pound isn't worth a pound anymore on the battlefield. Survival is your only instinct. One of the things that sticks out to me is the noise. And the noise in this particular instance would have been incredible. A built up area with rounds shattering the silence, the whole kit and caboodle going off like Chinese New Year. It would have been absolutely overawing. And although it seemed like Roosevelt and his men had lost the initiative, I think it was the opposite. From the Germans' point of view, he was laying down effective enemy fire, which would have prevented them from taking aim and would have kept their heads down. Takes a cool head to be able to retaliate. But luck was with them once again. The main road out of town suddenly dipped down, causing the deadly bullets from the heavy German machine gun to go high over their heads. However, the steep road also meant the jeep was going even faster. Rosevear then hit the brakes, but he knew he had practically lost control of the jeep. It was dangerously snaking from side to side as it flew down the road, its engine screaming in the darkness. The Major fought the steering wheel first one way, then the other, as the men were being thrown around. The trailer perilously close to jackknifing and breaking off. Then there was a bang as the trailer hit a curbstone. Peachy was thrown clean off and went crashing to the ground. The others looked back in dismay as they saw the Germans in hot pursuit running down the hill towards him. But they couldn't stop. The last they saw before they turned the bend was the gallant sapper standing in the middle of the road with his hands held high above him. Sadly, they would never see him again. The jeep screeched to a halt in front of the bridge. Quickly, the Major ordered several men to keep guard, pointing up the road. The Germans could be on them at any minute. Right, set up a perimeter, men. Rosevear felt very vulnerable without Peachy's powerful Bren gun. All they had now was a few stens. The Sergeant Major quickly got to work, unloading the jeep and trailer of the General Wade-shaped charges. These General Wade-shaped chargers were exactly the right explosives to use. They didn't have time to go around this bridge measuring it up and putting pieces here and pieces there and sticking this here and putting that on top of that. No, 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 no. They needed something shaped that would direct the charge in one direction and cut this thing straight in half. A line of these in the right place, boom, it's all over. The thing comes down like a stack of cards. The men laid the explosives on the ground across the expanse of the bridge from parapet to parapet. Lance Sergeant Henderson wiring them together with Cortex detonating cable and linked to an igniter. The whole job took less than five minutes, whilst the rest kept a lookout for the approaching Germans. None came. 
The explosion rang out in the dawn sky, reverberating around the valley. Any Germans who weren't aware of what was happening would surely be awake by now, thought Rosevear. The wave charges had cut a hole right through the bridge. Whilst the main support of the crossings was still standing, it was completely impassable. The road through the middle having been completely blown out. The sappers were jubilant. Rosevear less so, however. The mission may be accomplished, but they were still miles behind enemy lines. It was now 5 a.m. Dawn had started to break and they had just lost the cover of darkness. Making their way back would be even harder than getting there, the Major thought, especially as they couldn't return through Truan. That would be suicide. Then he spotted an old dirt track beside the river that took them through the fields to the north of the bridge. Ordering the men to load up, they set off once again. The jeep's handling greatly improved without the weight of the explosives. After half an hour of bouncing around the dirt road, they reached a dead end. The exhausted men would have to continue on foot. Progress through the French farmland was slow and extremely perilous. They had to be almost overcautious. Without much ammunition and limited firepower, they needed to avoid the Germans at all costs. Hugging the hedgerows and staying off the roads as much as possible, they soon found themselves swimming across the different streams and tributaries of the Dives River. Ironically, blowing the bridges meant there was no easy way back to their HQ. At this stage, you've completed your mission. And there's going to be an element of people thinking, I'm in the glad to be alive club here. We've done this now. This isn't quite true. Now, they're going to have to work out how exactly they're going to extract and get themselves back to safety. At the other side of the Bois de Burr's woods, Captain Jukes and the other sappers who had been sent by Rosevear to blow up the other two bridges had reached the first of their objectives. Unlike Rosevear, their journey had been totally uneventful, except for finding a semi-submerged horse glider smashed into the river. Inside there was a survivor, a pilot, but both his legs had been broken and he couldn't free himself. There was also a jeep and a six-pounder anti-tank gun stuck inside, but these were impossible to get out. Dukes and his men managed to free the pilot and blow up both bridges, pausing before the second bridge was destroyed to allow a French farmer to drive his cattle across one last time. Dukes evidently felt there was still time for gentlemanly acts, even in war. Ironically, at around 9.30am and on the other side of the valley, Rosevear also met a French cattle farmer who was milking his cows. I'm sure it must have been a different chap, but if it wasn't, he must have been really tired of running into British paratroopers. As the Major emerged wet and bedraggled from the hedgerow, the French farmer raised his hands. Rosevear, ever cheerful, told the farmer to put them down. He had been liberated, he explained. 
Much to his shock, and with language we can't repeat, the French farmer evidently wasn't so happy at the thought of becoming free. Back at the temporary HQ at the crossroads of Bois de Beurs, Captain Tim Jukes arrived back and reported to Lieutenant Colonel Alistair Pearson, a soldier who was later described by the Prince of Wales as one of the greatest leaders of the Second World War. There was still no sign of Rosevier or any news as to whether the bridge at Rouen had been blown. The commanding officer instructed Dukes to take a detachment and ensure it was destroyed. This time, he would ensure there were enough men to do the job. Placed under his command was a platoon of paratroopers under Lieutenant Brown, a jeep and trailer carrying Lieutenant Tony Wade, six sappers and 40 demolition charges. They would also be accompanied by two detachments of Royal Engineers a protective detachment under Sergeant Shrubsole and a rear guard under Lieutenant John Shave. Dukes and his mob, well, yes, they were going to put themselves back in a little bit of danger. Of course the Germans are going to be up and they're going to want to know what's going on and they're going to send people down to that bridge and you're going to pitch up. It's the golden rule. You don't revisit the crime scene, you get yourself out of dodge. Now in complete daylight, the captain and his team move through the Bar de Bavant before proceeding south along the road to Tron. 400 yards from the village, Lieutenant Wade Sappers and Lieutenant Shave's engineers were ordered to occupy a firm base to provide covering fire for the other paratroopers to advance into the town. I can only imagine how shocked the Germans must have been being the focus of so much love from the British airborne units. As Sergeant Shrubsole's group circled the church, they were suddenly fired upon. There was a machine gun post inside a nearby house, but a brief firefight resulted in four enemy soldiers and their officer being taken prisoner. Shortly after, they were fired upon again by a stronger force, but Brown's paratroopers and engineers charged the buildings. Their decisive actions accounted for two enemy dead, four wounded and 15 prisoners. Troan had finally been liberated. The French locals were ecstatic and it wasn't long before wine and brandy started to flow in appreciation of the paratroopers. Facing no further resistance, Dukes ordered Lieutenant Wade's demolition party to blow the bridge. But of course, once they reached it, they discovered that Major Rosevere had already beaten them to it. Wade estimated that Rosevere had demolished between a 15 to 20 feet section of the bridge. But seeing as he'd come all this way, he wasn't going to leave without making the hole even larger. For the second time in just a few hours, there was another terrific explosion at the bridge. Wade Sappers had doubled the size of the hole for good measure. Whilst Dukes and his men were enjoying the hospitality of the locals of Truon, who plied them with food and wine, Rosevere and his weary men finally arrived at Bois de Beurs at around midday. The five men must have been gasping for a drink and a bite to eat, I imagine. It was a terrible irony that all the cheese and wine in the area was literally back 
where they had just come from. Major Rosevear received a Distinguished Service Order for his role that day. A DSO is second only to a Victoria Cross, the highest recognition in the British military, and is awarded for conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty. Ben Hill, assistant curator at the Airborne Assault Museum, puts Rosevear's actions into context. D-Day was possibly the most complicated assault ever devised in modern times. There were many moving parts, and like a Swiss watch, all of them had to work perfectly if it was to succeed. Of course, nothing ever goes to plan in war, but if the engineers hadn't blown the bridges in Calvados, it would have allowed the Germans to counterattack and possibly cause the landings to fail. Luckily, however, that never came to pass, because all over Normandy, parachutists like Major Roseville were causing havoc, disrupting and confusing the enemy, which never allowed them the ability to properly counterattack. At the museum, we have the original planning boards for the airborne operation on D-Day. They are beautifully detailed and well worth a visit to see them. I think it's fair to say, without the bravery of men like Major Rosevere, the enormous airborne assault would not have been successful and it's very likely the beachhead landings themselves wouldn't have worked. Rosevear continued to lead the 3rd Parachute Battalion Royal Engineers throughout the rest of the conflict, through Normandy, the Ardennes and into Germany itself. He survived the war and became a civil engineer and continued to be highly decorated, being awarded the prestigious James Watt Gold Medal of the Institution of Civil Engineers. The irony is that after the war, Major Tim spent most of his life building bridges instead of blowing them up. Amongst the major projects on which he worked were the Kotri Bridge in Pakistan and the foundations of the Bosphorus Bridge in Turkey. He retired in 1982 and settled near Bath where he lived until the ripe old age of 86. There is a permanent memorial for Rosevear and his men by the site of the bridge outside Tron in Calvados, Normandy. You should visit if you get a chance. It's a beautiful part of the world. Major Tim's right-hand man, Sergeant Major Bob Barr, also survived the war, and after he was demobbed, he joined the Territorial Army Airborne Division. He stayed with the battalion until 1957 and was probably the oldest man in the TA still jumping. He died in 1995, aged 83. Sadly, Captain Tim Jukes, the officer who blew the two bridges at Burrs and who led the second attack at Truan, died just three weeks later. He was killed by a mortar shell which landed by his jeep. His loss was keenly felt by his men. One final word from Phil. It's with massive pride that I wore my red beret. And like these guys, I wasn't parachute regiment, I was Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. We happened to be five airborne, and I happened to do P Company and pass it, and was awarded not only my beret, but my wings. And I wore them throughout my career with massive, massive pride. Rosevere and his men, while sappers at heart still earned the right to wear the red berry, and with it, they joined a very special club indeed. 
To find out more about this operation and the many others the Airborne Forces took part in, then please do visit their museum in Duxford. You can find details of how on our website, amazingwarstories.com. Whilst you're at our website, please do consider supporting this venture. One way you can do so is by visiting our shop. There are some lovely items in there, and remember, everything you spend goes towards making more content that supports our military institutions. Do tell people about what we're trying to do here. Word of mouth is so important to our success. Another way of helping is to take the time to rate this podcast and hit the plus button, which will notify you each time a new episode is released. This helps new listeners find the podcast. The more people that discover us, the longer we can continue. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who free of charge gave up their time to help me tell this story. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and the music is by Extreme Music. <laughs> <laughs>